Hi, listeners. There are one or two swear words in this episode, so if you are with someone who shouldn't hear that or doesn't want to, you have been warned. Today I have to write a risk assessment that's already late. There's just like a lot of things every day that like need to get done by a certain date that I've also booked in three previews in June. So I guess I'm also liaising with those theatres, making sure I've given them everything they need and also working towards like performing at them. So I'm just going to check my to-do list for today and be like, learn my lines, it says on my to-do list. Finalize my poster. Post to Twitter. I've just been ignoring Twitter because I can't deal with it. Find a tech person. Yeah, that's another thing I need to finalize. So yeah, that's just stuff like that. Just takes up a lot of time, Molly. It's May. During my first interview with Neve Dinier as she gets ready to take her show, Get Blessed, to the Fringe for the first time in 2023. We've been following Neve and Hannah Crawford during their journey to the Fringe. Along the way, we've learned about the history, the prestige, complicated costs, complicated housing politics, and how opening night or day for a Fringe show is nowhere near the start of the story. Then when I made the decision that I'm going to go, I was like, right, well, I'm going to do this properly. Inverted commas, my version of properly. And that meant trying to get into a big venue, paying for PR, just generally just having an attitude of like, I'm putting everything into this rather than just kind of go up and I'll see what the vibe is and I'll see how it goes. I'm 33 now and I just sort of thought I want to go and really do it properly because I don't want to have to do this every single year. Like I'd love to just like go in and it go like really well. That's the dream. <laughs> I have other things I want to do. No, who knows? But maybe next year I'll do it totally different. Like there's so many ways that you can approach it. Just for me, I just want to kind of go for it. Neve did just that. She got into one of the big venues, Gilded Balloon. She hired a PR guy and she's putting everything she has in it. At the end of May, she brought on a director to help finesse the show and get a fresh perspective since she had been working on it by herself for six months after her first showing of Get Blessed at a small theater in London in November 2022. So we have only had a couple of rehearsals, but we've been going through the text, like looking at what do is working and not working. I've done some rewrites on sections and yeah she's been sort of started to direct like different sections of it so that's been really helpful actually to have that like outside eye. Marcia is a newer director that Neve met in drama school. When thinking about a director an artist can go several routes. You could hire a less experienced director who will also be less expensive. You could hire a seasoned director who will have the experience name recognition and potentially network but they'll cost more money or you could go no director at all. It all comes down to how much money you have to spend and what your goals are for the French. But no matter how you decide to approach it, there will always be challenges leading up to the French. I think the challenge has been making time for everything. I work a nine to five, like 40 hour a week job at the minute. So it has been challenging to fit this stuff in amongst that so the blurb like that took a few days of like over and back writing your blurb you have to get it down to like 38 words for the I think it's 38 words for the website no maybe that's for the no that's for the brochure like the physical brochure so while Neve is working on fitting everything in Hannah Crawford is balancing the logistics of the five productions she's associated with and launching her own company Thistle and Rose Arts so then you know, we've been throughout this producing process, setting up our company processes as we go. So, you know, now as a result of almost formalizing and formatting everyone's production budgets, we now have the default Thistle Nose Arts production budget format. And so, you know, th th these things have all developed along the way. 
I mean, we've had to build, obviously, a whole website of our own. We built a pitch deck, which is where you build sort of a very aesthetically pleasing slideshow, which gives all the key information to potential investors and potential benefactors about what you're doing, what money you're spending, why the show is going to be great, what the venue is, that sort of thing. I first spoke to Hannah in June. Hannah is acting as producer across financing, logistics, and general management, going back and forth with venues, getting deals in place, drawing up budgets, and sometimes helping with casting. We sort of took a look at what the creatives had brought to us in terms of a budget or a financial plan so far and then said, okay, let up the marketing spend there, include a fee for this person. We'll need like a little bit of a legal cost for that, for insurance. We're going to have to think about travel. So in every instance, we took the budget that they had made and just made it kind of a little bit bigger and then said, right, this is going to be our strategy of how to raise this money. I think producing is a bit like running a household, whether you've got kids or a family or, or just a partner or pets or whatever. Even if you've got a dog, you run a household. You have to pay bills. You have to budget for what you get paid every month. You maybe have like pet insurance. You need home contents insurance. You have to think about what day the bin's going out. It's a lot of common sense um, and it's a lot of skills that actually lots of people use in their everyday lives. But it's a role within the arts that's very shrouded in mystery. And everybody's number one question is, what do producers actually do? And I'm like, well, a better question is, what do we not do? As Fringe draws closer, so do deadlines. But those deadlines need money. And Hannah is still working on getting the money her production need. Yeah, we're really ramping up. We've got about six weeks to go and we've still got a huge amount to do. Um, So very practical things. The deadline for a company called Out of Hand, who are the people that manage all of the outdoor advertising at the festivals, the stuff that's on railings and, and bus stops and round lampposts and stuff. Their deadline for buying that space and submitting artwork is the 30th of June. But obviously the elephant in the room at this point is that I came on board with all these productions promising that I would raise the money for their show. Having never raised for a commercial production before. So there's a lot that we are still waiting to do once the money comes in. The original plan was to have half of it raised by the end of May, half of it raised by the end of June. All was going to work wonderfully. That seems like plenty of time. Obviously, it hasn't worked like that, but that's the point of a plan. The point of the plan is to have to throw the plan in the bin, but at least you felt prepared when you wrote the plan. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Scottish author and poet Robert Burns wrote that in Of Mice and Men. For the fringe, it seems like a requirement. No matter how much you plan, how proactive you are, something will go awry. It's the fringe. You've heard parts of Neve and Hannah's journey to the 2023 fringe, why they decided to do this fringe, how and why they made the decision on venues, funding, and accommodation. But for this episode, all of our focus is on them and their journey in the months leading up to the 2023 Fringe. I'm Molly Merwin, and this is Fringe Benefits Edinburgh, a story about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So it's a really strategically good place for us to head with an inaugural program of work, because instead of that sort of slow buildup of taking on one project and getting that to its first scratch and sort of getting it on for a couple of days there and then six months later getting it on for a couple of days there, I've got a bit of a need for speed. I don't know if it's the ADHD or I'm just like raring to go, but I would rather throw myself into being able to present a program of work, attracting all of that press attention, being able to juggle the different projects and also cross pollinate sort of resources and benefits between shows. It's the beginning of June when I first speak to Hannah Crawford of Thistle and Rose Arts. Hannah has been to the Fringe a lot, from performer to producer. So she's familiar with the ground and the demands of the Fringe. 
when she decided to finally make her dream of becoming a commercial producer a reality with Thistle and Rose Arts at the 2023 Fringe, she threw herself at it by working in association with five productions. Part of the deal she made with the productions was if she didn't raise the money needed to go to the Fringe, then she didn't get paid. She also found that while working with five productions is a lot to take on, it has its benefits in regards to press and marketing. So if somebody comes to review one show, I can say, well, why didn't you come along to that one? Because it's produced by the same people or, you know, all that sort of thing. So it made more sense to do a few at the same time. And every one of our shows does have both the potential and the aim of being programmed, you know, onward after the festival. Since her first conversations in the spring with the creators and productions she's working with, things have been progressing with venues, marketing, and getting things into place. But the money, or lack thereof, still hangs over everything. We're flying by the seat of our pants. We're still sitting on, on tender hooks a little bit while all of this falls into place in the next couple of weeks. But right now, in terms of logistical producing, everybody is in relationship now. We're in conversation with everybody's venue. We're starting to shore up our marketing approaches. If we've already got the marketing kind of image sorted, then we've now got the poster and the flyer design in place. That's starting to come together. We're in conversation getting technical people sorted out. We're still contracting some people who've been cast as well. So lots of things are starting to fall into place and we're now starting to think about the slightly smaller things like let's organise the travel, let's organise to transport the set. If any props or costumes need making in July, how are we doing that? We're sort of at that stage, but we're still just hanging on and sitting on our hands and waiting for a lot of that money to land, but it's looking a lot more promising. So I'm back on the horse this week after having a day yesterday of thinking, oh God, I've really fucked this up. So what would happen in the worst case scenario if she was not able to raise the funds needed? It's a two-stage disaster. The first stage is that we strip every budget back to the bare bones of what we need and we kind of work with what we have. The thing is, the reality is that a lot of these artists before we came on board as the producers already had a degree of personal savings that they were that were planning to fund their fringe run with and none of these people were planning to make money. Whereas if we make all the funding that we need, not only are all the expenses of the production going to be covered, but every one of those artists will be paid for their time as well. So there's quite a world between raising all of the money and only raising part of it. And the part raised situation is that the budgets get stripped back to the bare bones. We reduce the marketing. We go all out on the resources that we do have, which is a performer's flyering themselves, going back, seeing what could be done with the venues about payment plans and different things and doing it on a shoestring again. The black sky thinking scenario, if the worst was to happen, we weren't to raise another penny more. The reality of that is some shows would go ahead and they'd have to be cancelled and we'd have to deproduce or unproduce. I haven't unproduced anything since the pandemic. Unproduce. That sounds ominous. I had never heard the term before, but unproducing is exactly what it sounds like. You cancel the show and have to tell the venue so they update the box office. You have to address marketing and PR. If people have bought a ticket, they would get a refund and the deposit or your guarantee we talked about in the last episode is gone. But while you're out of that money, you wouldn't be responsible for all the additional funds like flyer printing, advertising, accommodation, if you are able to cancel it, travel, and additional living expenses. Throughout 2020 and 2023, this was a common occurrence because of the pandemic. I asked Hannah, what was the minimum viable number to go ahead with the productions? That's closer to 90k. So maybe 100. And we're currently sitting at 25 with a big change in our potential for raising in the next two weeks in the sense that we've got four or five in-person events coming up. So yeah, yeah, I think we're in a place where they're all going to go ahead in some fashion, but we're still absolutely gunning for that full raise to make that happen. Hannah had told me earlier one thing she had learned with fundraising is that in-person events matter. Getting in front of people and telling them your story is what will more likely move them to give. 
She had been doing a lot of online reaching out with not much success. But after an in-person event the week before we spoke in June, where she raised 20,000 pounds, she felt in-person would have more impact. So as Hannah focuses on getting funds raised for all the productions she's associated with, Neve, who is self-producing, is focusing on getting everything done. It's more just like you suddenly remember things that you're like, oh, I haven't done this yet or I haven't done that. And it's just kind of constantly trying to like, will it all ever be done? But I think that's life anyway, isn't it? Life is never going to be done. You just have to keep going. Neve keeps going, creating and submitting posters for marketing, writing a blurb for the program, looking for a technician for her show, and writing articles for publications her publicists submitted her to. I had three previews in June. Well, I'm calling them previews. They're really work in progresses, which I'm really grateful I did because I've learned so much, but just kind of a lot. Trying to rehearse that, get it up to speed, on top of kind of liaising all the things that you need to get a show on, and then carrying on with all the stuff that they're asking for Edinburgh and the PR side of things. So yeah, I've had a few cries, let's put it that way. That was during our second conversation in June. Being a solo self-producing artist can be hard because you don't have fellow castmates or a team in the trenches with you, but you find support elsewhere and try to avoid arguments about the fridge. My husband's also bringing a show to Edinburgh, although more of a work in progress, although that's a mixed blessing in itself, Molly. It's a lot to have two people working on a show at the same tiny flat at the same time. We might have had a large argument about a fridge the other day. But anyway, it wasn't about the fridge. No, it never is. It's never about the fridge. We're good. I think it's just he was also doing a work in progress at the same week as me. So I think we were both just in our own space trying to work on these things and live in a tiny flat that as soon as you bring out some props just get like extremely messy immediately and also I guess when you're both working on things you just need different things at different times and you're not always emotionally equipped to be there for somebody when you're also slightly drowning in making things happen but you live in Mary Another avenue of support Neve has is the Soho Theatre Edinburgh Lab. Soho Theatre is a well-known and respected producer of new work in theatre, comedy, and cabaret from emerging and established artists. A big score for a show would be to end up at Soho Theatre after a fringe run. Side note, Soho is one of maybe even my favorite theatre in London, so I may be a little biased. Anyway, Soho runs an Edinburgh lab on an application basis for people going to the Fringe. It meets once a week for eight weeks to discuss all logistical and practical bits of the Fringe. It's basically a support group for people going to the Fringe. A big topic in the lab has been previews. Like how many previews should you do? Should you do previews? Should you invite press to preview in London? Should you not? Like it's kind of, that's a whole other element to it as well. I think especially with a few people in the group doing plays. And again, just putting a play on is, I suppose mine's somewhere in between both. But even just doing that for one night is quite a lot of work to like get that together. I think for stand-ups, it's their day, you know, they're out gigging most weeks. So that's kind of like, oh yeah, it's a given. They're out doing their Edinburgh material before they go. For me, it was more like, it's quite an operation for me to put my show on, you know? It's like, there's props and there's a projector screen and things that I can't just rock up and do on a like random night. So yeah, there's just been a lot of chat of like, where to do previews, where it's good to do them, like how any should do. Like Then you're also like trying to get an audience for your previews. So yeah, it's just like a whole other thing. Previews help performers see what's working or not and create potential buzz for publicity for the show before going up to the fringe. Neve's publicist thinks she should do as many as possible. 
I always thought at least one preview was kind of a given, but of the five productions Hannah is associated with, only two are doing previews. We're fundraising right now to just get things to Edinburgh. There would be even more funds involved if we were to be putting up previews in advance as well. Sometimes previews can make money if they sell really well, and that's great. But yeah, that's just a time and logistics constraint, really, and pricing constraint from our perspective this time. But it's also a bit of a, you're, you're throwing the dice a little bit because if you hold a preview show in London, is that really going to impact your sales in Edinburgh that much? Or are we simply doing it to find out whether the show works and if it's very good? And if so, can we not just do a slightly longer tech rehearsal? I think it depends on the show. It also depends if the artist involved or some of the creative team have an audience of their own in a particular city or in a particular place, then it sometimes makes sense because if you know that you can sell out a preview, make yourself a bit of extra income, and test out the show on a few audience members, maybe tweak some things. In reflecting on her works and progresses in June, Neve said, I did one at the, as part of Pincher Vault, and that was in the basement of a Thai restaurant in Waterloo, which was quite hilarious and really actually worked for my show very well because I just did a whole bit at the beginning of no idea how we ended up in the basement of a Thai restaurant. I thought this was a boutique hotel, which was just perfect. <laughs> and that was a tiny little audience, but I think I was much more relaxed by then because I'd done it the night before. And so I actually really enjoyed that one. You can discover new things for your show and previews, even when you don't plan to. For example, if the technician forgets to bring up the lights when they're supposed to. I just went with it and was like, back, check it out. And I just added... I'm actually going to bring that as the show, I think, where there's a bit of over and back with the tech because she's quite a bossy person. And I like the idea of the tech or the lights just not going right, quite right for her and her just sort of screaming at the tech. Yeah, so I learned a lot. I think I, I got loads of feedback, loads of people with ideas, but mostly like ideas for the show, which I think is quite nice because it obviously shows that people were like into it and they're like, oh, this could work or that would work. Neve decided to book two previews for July. And that will hopefully be pretty much what the show is going to be. So I'm going to do, when I have find some time, Molly, I'm going to do some rewrites on the show. But that's proving very difficult to find time for. I'm also just doing too many things, you know, again, I'm going to see Frozen tomorrow. I mean, is that really necessary? No, but I'm going. <laughs> Before we ended this conversation, I wanted to show Neve something I had picked up. So maybe this will cheer you up. Have you seen this? Do you know, I haven't actually got a copy of it yet. I've looked you up already. I'm in there. You are in there. I can confirm. Hold on. It's the Fringe booklet, we should say, for listeners. So yes, yeah, so, so I'm holding up the Fringe program right now. And you are under comedy. Because, you know, last time we talked a lot about the blurb. And all this kind of stuff. It's 38 words. There you are. Can you see it? Yeah. It looks great. Yeah. yeah. How does that make you feel? Happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for getting the copy. You're on page 88 when you put oh, it Oh, I like that number. Same digits. 88. Page 88. No going back now. <laughs> yeah. You're going. <laughs> then print. As Neve finalizes her show and fits in Frozen, and Hannah races to get in front of investors, the fringe moves closer. After the break, Neve balances life and the fringe, and Hannah receives a call no one wants. Hi, listeners. I hope you're enjoying the episode. If you're thinking, that girl needs a coffee, you'd be right. Except I don't drink coffee. I actually drink tea, which is very un-American of me. But if you'd like to buy me a coffee, which I would use to buy a tea, you can do so at fringebenefitspod.com. And there's a link in the show notes. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the episode.
how am I? Great question. I would say I'm very stressed, to be honest with you. I am, I think, every time I speak to you. It's now the middle of July, only weeks until Fringe. Uh, but this is more peripheral things to Edinburgh, but I think it's probably just a sign that trying to do an Edinburgh show on top of other general life things is challenging. It's okay, though. I'm in a good position. I think I have, like, most of my to-do list pretty much ticked. I'd say 90%, yeah. I think the main thing I'd like is just like a bit more time to just work on the show because it's all there. I'll have done five previews by the time I get there. But I do think there's certain things I want to tighten, but I'm just having the physical time to actually get into rehearsal has been difficult between working full time. And then I was, I think I mentioned off mic that I was sick last week for three days. So yeah, it's just been a lot. Neve has been working on getting her flyers finalized, battling a cold, working on buying her new home and rehearsing her show a little. I think it was meant to be two, but I've had one, I think. So that's with my director. I've obviously worked on it on my own. I did do a, a rehearsal last week just by myself. So I guess with those in mind, it's probably like two to three. So not that many, really. I mean, it's good booking in previews because it motivates you towards a date that you're, you want things to progress by. But I just did a preview on Sunday and I didn't get time to do all the things I wanted to test out in the audience, but I got to do some things. So I've got another one on the 29th, the night before I leave for Edinburgh. So that's kind of what I'm next working towards. So next week, that's going to be like hell for leather. Hell for leather. I had never heard this term before, but I like it. It means as fast as possible. But hell for leather sounds way cooler and way more accurate for fringe. And the time since we last spoke, Neve had booked her technician and was able to get some coveted outdoor advertising. I'm happy about that. Couldn't really afford much, but I just felt like, you know, when you just kind of need to get something just for me to tick it off and say I've done as much as I can with that. But it's not cheap. It's very expensive. On just outdoor, I've spent a grand total of about £350. I'm getting four double railing poster things, which I think are slightly bigger than A3. They're bigger than A3, but they're not massive, massive, but they're big. And then I got another poster wrap of 10 A3 posters. There's been a lot of mixed opinions amongst people I've asked about outdoor advertising on whether it's worth it or not. And I think if you're going for a small amount like I have, it's probably not because you're competing with big comedians with yeah. massive production or whatever behind them. But it's like a psychological thing where it's like, even if I just get one and I'll be able to take a photo beside it, that'll be fun. When you arrive in Edinburgh during the Fringe, you are surrounded by a sea of posters and billboards for shows. If there is a fence or a wall in Edinburgh in August, it is covered in posters. It seems they erect some fences just for posters and billboards. Any lamppost around Edinburgh Centre has around eight posters on each side. The closer you get to the Royal Mile, the more posters you will find. It's hard to say if they're worth it. As Neve said, if you're a big name or have money to spend or are really trying to win on ticket sales, they can be. Remember Sam from Spontaneous Potter in the last episode? His company buys large posters every year. You'll see them scattered throughout the fringe. And I have to admit, even if I didn't know them, the posters would draw me in. But if you only have enough for a few, who knows? Maybe it is worth it just to say you tried and having a fun experience taking a photo beside your poster to prove you were there. And then there's the flyer, where we started our story in episode one. A lot of artists find themselves designing and redesigning it over and over, going over every little detail leading up to the fringe. Because make no mistake, a show will be judged based on its flyer. You're competing with how many shows and you do get someone who listens to you for a few minutes and takes your flyer and they've got three others in their hand and yours speaks to them in some way or you've chosen really 
funny copy or good things on the back of it that they're like oh that sounds cool you've got the QR code another one doesn't and then they're just like oh this is easy I just go on and book it it's like a lot rides on it actually I think in Edinburgh I'm not sure if flyers as a concept work that well outside of Edinburgh but they seem to be a very big thing there a logo placement and QR code for her flyer had been plaguing Neve's mind but she was going to finalize it and send it off to be printed after we spoke but when it came to thinking of actual flyering, I'm personally dredging it. I'm just going to put that out there. But I think once I actually do it and I get into it and I'm doing it every day, I'll probably be absolutely fine because I do enjoy talking to people and I'm like approach people easily. But it's just putting yourself very out there, isn't it? It's like selling yourself all day. One of the things I, I've been in this Soho Theatre Edinburgh lab and one of the things that our mentor has um, said is just get used to pitching and selling your show. So I've done that a lot, which has made me a bit more confident with it. Not going to lie. When I realized I was going to be flyering for the show I was working on, I was dreading it as well. But after a few times, you get used to it. People may take it, they may not, but it's not personal, even if it may feel personal at the time. It's not. There's just a lot of shows and a lot of flyers. Then again, I guess for me, it wasn't personal because it wasn't my show that I had worked on so hard to get up to Fringe. Having a review or something quippy to call out helps. For Neve, it would be turning death into a living. Also, spoiler alert, Neve is very good at flyering. Whatever dread she has now will fade. But that's for the next episode. I asked Neve how it was going with two artists in the house. No more arguments about the fridge. I think we sorted that one out. We kind of got to the bottom of the fact we're both doing shows and it is quite stressful. And since then, it's actually been fine. So fridge, sorted. Great. But with the fringe weeks away, how is Neve's mental health in general? Changes by the day, I'd say, Molly. Like some days I'm, woo, I'm going to Edinburgh and I'm making something from nothing. This is great. And then other days I feel like I'm carrying a lot of knots in my stomach. The weight of it is quite impactful on the body. I'd say I'm trying to be in the moment with it and enjoy the things. And, you know, when I get to September and I have no acting jobs lined up and I'm like, oh, wasn't that great? When I was really busy and I was doing an Edinburgh show. But sometimes it's hard to feel that when you just have so much else in your mind. So, but yeah, overall, I'd say I'm kind of coping, but I would like to get to a place where everything's a bit more in a flow. I think there's a lot of anticipation with the idea of arriving there and there's a lot of unknowns. Like, what is the venue actually like until I see it? How does my flyer physically look? Because I haven't seen it in person. How does my routine look every day that I get up and I do my flyer and then I do the show? In my head, there's not an answer for a lot of that yet. So I think I'm kind of someone who likes to know what to expect. And when you can't do that fully, then it opens up a bit of uh, what ifs. I'm most looking forward to waking up every day and performing every day for a month because that's what the joy of it all is really and that's why we're doing it and I know I love that. I know once I get in the flow of it I'm going to be so... All the other stuff might be stressful still like the flyering and the reviews and who's coming and who's not coming and what have you but getting up and doing my show every day. So while Neve tries to put the what-ifs and the stress of self-producing out of her mind as she looks forward to waking up every day to do her show... Hannah is just trying to make sure she eats breakfast. I only ate half my breakfast. I had toast and honey and peanut butter because they are non-perishable things that stay in the cupboard for ages and not bread. I'm so busy. <laughs> I haven't cleaned or washed anything or done any food shopping in two weeks. So I was like, okay, what do I have in the cupboard? And so I have tinned peaches for lunch or peanut butter on toast for breakfast and things that just things that don't go off. When you have a crisis week like that, week, on top of just being three weeks away from the fringe as a whole and everything else, it just, yeah, gone shit. The Monday before I spoke to Hannah in early July, she was very ill in bed and received a phone call from someone who said they were with her bank. 
They had all the company's details, email, postcode, how much money was in the account. And as this person is saying all these things, Hannah is on her bank's app chat to confirm this person on the phone is the person they say they are. The person then says, oh, I see you're messaging customer service. And they tell her they're calling because it seems like someone is trying to defraud her. There seems to be a large amount of money trying to be taken out of her account. And then I say, sorry, can I just check? How do I know that you are from Monzo? Because usually they would contact me in the app. Oh, well, obviously in cases like this, where someone's trying to gain access to your account, we don't use the app. We call you. I can confirm that. Is this your postcode? Is this your email associated with your account? Are these the last four digits on your card number? Is this the name of the organization? All of these. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. Well, okay. Yeah. And basically in that conversation, they, they cleared the account of all but 26 pounds or something. It was a very sophisticated fraud. They knew the right things to say and had some of her personal details. The fraudsters took 4,000 pounds in total. It was the money Hannah was going to use to pay the actors the coming week. I obviously went and phoned the police as well, had to get a crime number. I've never done that before. And, and all of this is on top of like what should have been quite a busy day anyway. You know, we're not very far away from the festival. And police explained to me what the process would be from their end. They gave me the crime number to forward back to Monzo and to forward back to the company that I'd managed to figure out the money had gone to, which was an international money transfer service. So they tried to slow down the police and Monzo's availability to track the money by putting it through a third party service once it left the account. The police had told her that a lot of people fall victim to the fraud because it's almost impossible to tell as these people do this for a living. It took Monzo 12 hours to get back to Hannah after initially contacting them about the money. And by that time, the money was gone. Hannah was confident she would get the money back, but had no idea about when. Monzo said they usually try to get back to customers in 24 hours, but it had been a week when Hannah and I spoke towards the beginning of July, weeks before the fringe was beginning. To top it off, she was still behind on her overall fundraising goal. So yeah, we've had a couple of small donations, people we reached out to, I went back and asked for small amounts of money from various businesses and different things. We've had a couple that have come in already. I'm still working on that. We can, out of the company's fee for raising money for a different show, we can sort of stump up some immediate costs. That comes at detriment to me, but we can do that. We've also got an active crowdfunder that is still drips in bits and bobs. So we're building up a little bit of trying to build up some reserve to be able to pay what needs paid at the end of the week from that. But yeah, it's it's super touch and go for one production in particular, for which we have no other cash flow. Yeah. So it, it took us from a precarious fundraising position where we're not where we needed to be. And we were back to talking about artists self-funding to some degrees while I continue to try and raise money in the time we've got left to the kind of crisis point we're at now where we have to find cash flow for the end of this week. We're not quite sure how we're going to do that, but we're still making phone calls and questions and hoping for the best. Hannah got a £20,000 pledge from one investor the week before, but that was earmarked for one production specifically, so she couldn't use it across other productions. And while she had hosted another fundraising gala where she was hoping to raise most of what she still needed, no one came but the creatives, actors, and family and friends of the shows. And while fundraising for the company would be nice, her goal, first and foremost, was fundraising for the productions. I was never so arrogant as to assume that it was easy to raise money for the arts because I knew that it wasn't. But I am more tenacious than most people I know. So my thought process was, well, if I have this big list of people that were in my corner, people that say they're going to help you and my own tenacity and my own determination. And I did from the beginning of April to about now reach out to about 1500 people that like cold contacts that I hadn't met before to try and generate conversations along with my warm network, along with hosting a fundraising gala last week for a community that said they were going to come. And then people for one reason or another either weren't available or didn't come. Yeah, so we have thrown everything at it. 
we're not out of options yet. I'm refusing to be out of options yet, but there's a world in which we will be out of options by the end of next week. During this crisis week of trying to raise money, Hannah was put in direct contact with a lot of West End producers and other top UK professionals who she never had access to before. It hit her that the only reason she was able to have this access was because she was taking such a big risk. It is frustrating that the price sometimes of getting in the room with the people that you really need to speak to is taking extraordinary risk of like bankrupting yourself and everybody else in order to do that. And that's a rule of business and everything. And I understand that. But it's been interesting to be in so many rooms talking about the fringe as a whole and how much income the city makes and how much so many people benefit from having that world's largest art festival in the city. The actual fact that there are shows around which to build an arts festival is often built on the backs of a lot of people that are not getting paid or have taken really extraordinary personal risks in order to to be there. So you start to wonder, like, what actually is the bedrock of that event? And the bedrock is individual artists and their savings accounts and their mums giving them a loan and... And then people like me who are sort of out there hustling to get people to listen. Because the fact is, whenever people do sit down and they hear about the products that we have and they look at the details, they're in. It's just that getting in front of those people, because people are not often given the opportunity to, or the education around investing in theatre. So when they first hear about it, they go, oh, that's not for me. It's difficult to say to somebody, actually it is, you just don't know it is yet. (laughs) It sounded to me like Hannah was saying the cost of Fringe may not be worth it to the artists. And I asked her how that made her feel. Her anger was not specifically directed at the Edinburgh Fringe. I think this is a rule across theatre and the Edinburgh Festival is just a sort of poster child for the way that the industry works as a whole. So I want to say that I I don't think it's fair to lay the the blame at anyone's feet in particular, but at the same time, it is difficult because we have so many conversations within the industry about how we make better theatre, how we make more accessible theatre, how we widen out the scope, how we break down class barriers, how we do all these things and... I, with eight years as a professional producer who very much knows what I'm doing, put together an incredible program filled with people that we all sit in rooms and talk about should be more represented in theatre and contacted lots of people to try and to fund it and make it happen. And there were a lot of closed doors. And in fact, when we went back to a lot of the co-producing partners and people who have their names of their organizations on our posters to say, we're really in trouble. Could you help us out in any of these 10 ways? The resounding answer was no by all of those companies and organizations. And it's just difficult sitting here at this particular moment of the process to imagine how on earth anyone who doesn't have a parent or a family friend or a mentor, somebody who has the deep pockets to bankroll them through their first two or three kind of big mistakes before they make it. If you haven't come from that kind of privilege, it's really difficult for me to see right now how anyone's meant to do this. And that makes it hard to look at the way that the Edinburgh festivals are are marketed and are held up as such a triumph when I see the budgets and the realities of what that feels like from the inside and for the individual artists who are up there. As someone working with the artist directly, what is it like co-producing with artists who have so much at stake emotionally, mentally and financially? In some ways, co-producing with artists is brilliant because you have another person in your corner, it's less isolating. But when the same person holding the creative strings is also the person holding the purse strings. And there are times when I will receive an email and my head immediately goes, okay, well, the answer to that is the strategic response. And I actually have to take a couple of extra steps now because I've got an artist who's now phoning me who's received the same email and is now panicking about some aspect of it. And so there's an extra level of kind of emotional management 
which I don't resent because the partnership that is created by co-producing it together, it gives more than it takes, but it's just an extra kind of explanation and sometimes it requires a bit of extra work. I asked Hannah about unproducing, even though I didn't want to put that bad mojo out there less than a month before the fringe, but I was curious how often that happens. More than I ever thought, because actually only when I was recounting where we are right now to a friend yesterday, that I remembered that in fact last year I shared a flat with a dancer who was due to be in a show in Edinburgh and was up here for the month and after the opening night, someone at the director had a hissy fit or somebody got upset and there was a big argument and they pulled the show and they cancelled the show once it was already happening. And that almost made me feel better because I was here feeling sick and not sleeping at night, thinking about cancelling something once once it's gone into rehearsals, it doesn't go ahead. But boy, like at least I don't think I'm going to put anybody in the position of the show having already begun and then take it back down again. So that's a blessing, at least. As bleak as that blessing was, there were actual positive things to be excited about. A few of the productions were already gaining buzz, getting shout outs from well-known YouTubers, Time Out and other publications. I asked her how that made her feel. To be honest, very surreal at this point to be sitting with, in some ways, such a, a negative talking point about the show. Yeah, absolutely amazing. That's brilliant. It was so important to me and something that I spoke to all of our PR partners about was that, yeah, it's great if we can get a view, review in The Guardian. Yeah, it's amazing if we can get a shout out from The Independent or whatever. But also the more bloggers, micro kind of bloggers, YouTubers, all of those people, TikTok folk, you know, that it, that's a much more grassroots audience. Hannah knew she had to stay positive because she had meetings and calls lined up, including one with Kenny Wax, who produced the fringe turned Broadway and West End sensation Six the Musical, among many other things. Half of my brain is like, you could walk into a meeting with somebody next week who's like, I recognize everything that you've done. I think it's amazing. Here's 50 grand. Go do it. And I have to hold on to that possibility and I have to hold that faith because I cannot... I cannot go and cancel any show for sure. And then three days later, find out that somebody was going to give me the money after all. And I just had to hang on that little bit longer. And it is a gamble because as my accountant pointed out to me today, every single day that you don't add up your losses and start shutting things down, the cost increases. She's like, the sooner you shut this down, Hannah, the better. And I am a massive risk taker and a big maverick. And I'm like, well, I haven't crashed yet, but I'm already burning mid-flight. And while I'm burning, it's very pretty. After this conversation in early July, Hannah and I scheduled another one right before she headed off to Edinburgh. Before that conversation, she sent me an email she had also sent to all of her productions. It was all the fundraising outreach, what the concrete leads were, who had replied and who hadn't gotten back to her. It was a lot. Just reading it exhausted me. At the end of the email, she told me three of the productions were definitely going ahead, albeit with some difficulty and hard decisions. Two of the productions were in danger of being canceled. About a week after that email and days before Hannah was leaving for Edinburgh, this is what she told me. Also, she was at the rehearsals for one of the productions, so bear with the audio. So what I sent you was was just a summary that had gone around to all the artists of like, these are the conversations that I've had this week. And it was quite illuminating, actually, because lots of people came back to me and said, oh, my God, I feel, yeah, just like you, I feel like my blood pressure has gone up just reading this. Is this all just one week's worth of effort? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> In the midst of all of this, she was still doing other production work, like in the household analogy. There's still bins to take out and washing and cleaning to do, except in this case, it's vans to hire, travel to book, and accommodation to finalize for the productions and others going to Fringe. This is why I always em emphasize to people that you should not book your Edinburgh accommodation in January and pay 
£10,000 for it because the closer you get to the festival, the close, the more and more you'll have all of these people coming up saying, we've got a spare room in the flat that we've booked. See, I told you we wouldn't leave accommodation with the last episode. I asked her about the two productions in the email and she told me that one of the productions was able to secure an additional £2,000 and she was able to secure another £1,000 from a Western producer that she did not want to name. So all productions are headed to the fringe. In the last days of July, I found myself in a small arts venue on the south side of London called The Glitch. The upstairs space is fun and quirky with tables and chairs outside where my friend and I sat while we wait for a show. At around 8 o'clock, 17 people, including myself and my friend, head downstairs to a small room that fits around 30 people. And that is where I find Neve. Except now, she's Anya, a celebrant. As Anya, Neve is interacting with the audience and people are interacting back in a supportive way. It's fun to see some of the elements I've heard so much about come to life. The show ends with many laughs and wafers given out to each audience member with Neve's face on them. I speak to Neve afterwards. I feel good. Yeah, it was fun. I think I'm in that bewildered post-show state, but audience were lovely. I was I improvised and used the audience a lot more than normal, which so that was good to test that out. I really enjoyed myself. And I still haven't packed for Edinburgh and my train's at half 11 tomorrow. But, you know, that's fine. I'm having a pint and it's all fine. Her space at the Fringe has seating for 60. So my big question was, is there going to be enough wafers for everyone? I just ordered 312. I've got a good relationship with cakeshop.com now. Emily, thank you. I've never met you, but you're very helpful. She must think I'm bonkers because I just say, can you just, can I get this made, please? And that picture of my face with celebrant of the year 2023 on which Anya's manifesting for herself it's not really a normal thing to get on a cake so she's probably like what is she doing with these and this time I told her it's my Edinburgh show she just put the order through and gave me the PayPal link I didn't ask any questions 65 pounds that cost me for 312 of those wafers I see Neve the last night before she leaves for Edinburgh and ask in one word how she feels excited we've moved on from overwhelmed next time on Fringe Benefits Edinburgh. Your next stop will be Edinburgh Waverley. Honestly, it really hurt my soul, Molly. Gonna start crying on the street. It's so mean, it's so expensive. Is it targeted, is it not? Is it somebody just being silly? But this is the point where Fringe is like the bit of childbirth where you want to push it back in, but you can't and you have no choice but to go it and just do it anyway, because it's only going in one direction. Fringe Benefits Edinburgh was written, reported, edited, and hosted by me, Molly Merwin. Script consultant, Tom Noonan. Original music by Colette Jonas. Supporting producer, Alex Merwin. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe and maybe give us a five-star review. It helps continue podcasts like these. Thanks.